0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study This brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 92, the book of Matthew, chapter 26, the fourth continuation. When we left off last time in Matthew chapter 26, Yeshua had just been identified by Judas and betrayed to the temple authorities. It was nighttime. It was just a short time after the Last Supper. So it occurred within the first few hours of the day of Passover, Nisan the 14th. Now, I want us to reread the short section where that arrest happened. So open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to read verses 47 through 56. Start, so starting at verse 47, Matthew chapter 26. While Yeshua was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came and with him a large crowd carrying swords and clubs from the head, Kohanim, the head priest, and the elders of the people. The betrayer had arranged to give them a signal, The man I kiss is the one you want, grab him. He went straight up to Yeshua and said, Shalom, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Yeshua said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they moved forward, laid hold of Yeshua, and arrested him. At that, one of the men with Yeshua reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck at the servant of the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, cutting off his ear. And Yeshua said to him, Put your sword back where it belongs, for everyone who uses the sword will die by the sword. Don't you know that I can ask my father, and he will instantly provide more than a, a dozen armies of angels to help me? But if I did that, how could I, How could the passages in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, be fulfilled that say it has to happen this way? Then Yeshua addressed the crowd. So you came out to take me with swords and clubs, the way you would the leader of a rebellion? Every day I sat in the temple court teaching. You didn't seize me then. But all this has happened so that what the prophets wrote may be fulfilled. Then the disciples all deserted him and ran away. Matthew describes a crowd that came with Judas leading them to arrest Christ. Now the Apostle John describes this crowd as consisting not of ordinary Jewish citizens, but of military-like people, no doubt the temple police. These were not Roman soldiers, but rather a militia of, of Jews, probably Levites, loyal To the Jewish religious authorities, and they formally employed to help control the, the many people, Jews and Gentiles, that came to the temple and to arrest violators of religious laws. Now, we're told that some chief priests, along with elders, were among the group. Now, the chief priests were senior priests, temple representatives, but this is not the high priest. The elders were representative of the synagogue system. So, both ends of the Jewish religious leadership spectrum were present, and very likely these men were all members of the Sanhedrin and would be part of the council convened to condemn Jesus. So, when Yeshua is grabbed hold of by the temple police, one of the men with him, one of his twelve disciples, reacts instinctively. And he pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of one of the police in the crowd. Matthew doesn't name the disciple with the sword or the man whose ear was amputated. However, John does. In John 18.10, Then Shimon Kepha, Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. The slave's name was Melech. John supplies the information that it was Peter, what a surprise, that was the one that acted impulsively, and that it was a servant of the high priest whose ear was severed. His name was Melech. In Hebrew, that means king. Now, John wants us to notice that Peter didn't just swing his sword at random, but rather picked out the high priest's household representative that was present. It shouldn't fly by us that Peter was armed and dangerous, which seems a little bit odd after all of Jesus' teachings about being passive or at least peaceable in the face of evil or oppression. Now, clearly, Peter saw danger in being Christ's disciple and also saw himself as Christ's personal bodyguard. Well, Jesus instantly chastises Peter for his action, and he completes his statement with a saying that has become famous, at least in the world of Western Christianity. For everyone who uses the sword will die by the sword. Now this is neither a promise nor a new divine law pronounced by Christ it's a proverb. A proverb is a general truism or a wisdom saying that doesn't necessarily apply in every situation, nor does it always turn out that way. But it is a good rule of thumb. Now, I want to take a moment to discuss this slightly more because I think due to this theme especially, Yeshua is sometimes characterized by Christians as being an adamant pacifist. Now, we are dealing here with a very specific set of circumstances. First, Yeshua by His nature was not a violent man. Jewish holy men, Sadakim, were within their divine calling, healers. They were miracle workers, diplomats, teachers, Second, Jesus knew in his later adult life that mistreatment, brutalization, and then execution was his God-ordained fate, and thus to do anything that would subvert or even delay that would be to go against his Father's will. Third, it is God's general will for his followers to always Always seek peace on earth and goodwill towards all men. And Yeshua exemplified that to a point. Paul made a midrash, an interpretation on this concept that itself is, again, more proverb than command. And he did this in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 12, 17 through 21. Repay no one evil for evil, but try to do what everyone regards as good. If possible, and to the extent that it depends on you, live in peace with all people. Never seek revenge, my friends. Instead, leave that to God's anger. For in the Tanakh it is written, Adonai says, Vengeance is my responsibility. I will repay. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap fiery coals of shame on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. See, Paul recognizes in Christ's teachings that we are, generally speaking, to approach our fellow man as peaceably as possible but sometimes it's just not up to us. Thus, there is this fine line to walk in order to carry this instruction out. Jesus, for instance, is not depicted as being attacked during his arrest, only led away by government officials. But the idea that a believer is never to act in self-defense against a violent criminal aggressor This is not part of the concept. Rather, it is to understand that there are going to be many times in our lives when our options are limited, when life hangs in the balance, or justice is just not done on earth. And yet we are not to become vigilantes. We are not to try to extract justice as we see fit, because that's what revenge amounts to. Rather, God will make right the wrongs in the world to come. At the same time, we have witnessed Yeshua taking on the deceived and corrupt Jewish religious establishment using strong and even offensive terms that he, of course, knew would uh, provoke a, a strong backlash that could and would eventually lead to violence. Now, fourth, just as the law of Moses prescribes, Jesus doesn't ever speak against soldiers killing the enemy in battle or against someone protecting their homes or families, against aggressive criminals bent on physical harm. The Torah defines those defensive actions as proper and it's labeled as justifiable killing, meaning it's not a sin. Things change, however, as concerns Jesus when the Son of Man returns. The same one preaching nonviolence for the time being transforms into God's unstoppable avenger. Much of the population of planet Earth will be killed by Him and those believers and angels that He leads as an army to execute God's wrath against the irredeemably wicked. So, we should not make Jesus into the type of Joan Baez fat pacifist who once said that even if a killer was standing over the crib of her infant child, bent on killing it, she would do no more than beg him not to. She would assert no physical action to stop him, whether by fighting him or with using a weapon. Rather, In the case of Christ's ministry and His arrest, all His passiveness was intended for was for Him to arrive at a predestined purpose, going to the cross for you and for me. Then in verse 53, Yeshua says something that simply drips with interesting implications he says <clears throat> that the reason that peter should not attack those arresting him is that if yeshua intended on stopping it all all he had to do was ask his father to send a dozen 12 is what the greek says armies of angels to help him now the first thing we should take from this Is that Jesus was well aware that he had a choice. He had a choice. Jesus was not a programmed robot. He had a free will. He could have averted the humiliations and the crucifixion if he wanted to. The second thing to notice is that, once again, the hierarchy of divine authority is highlighted. Yeshua doesn't call angels to help him on his accord. He says he must ask the Father to send them. So Yeshua's level of authority is always junior to the level of his Father's authority. Third, while calling upon angels to protect him, it would subvert His purpose in this is first coming, which is to die as a sin offering for humanity. But in His return, angels will indeed be called upon. See, this current conflict that He is experiencing is meant to keep its location firmly earthbound, Jerusalem. Only later will this great spiritual battle spill over to include the entire cosmos. Fifth, holy war. Holy war has always been part of God's arsenal. Holy war is what Joshua waged on God's behalf to claim the Holy Land. And angels are regularly part of holy war. Yeshua's current situation would not see holy war employed because the time for it wasn't yet at hand. When he returns in the future, it is holy war that will be fought at a level never seen before, nor will it ever again. And finally, notice that the number 12 is used. 12 legions of angels that of course correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel. Then in verse 54 Jesus explains why he has chosen to allow himself to be tortured and killed. He asks Peter a rhetorical question as regards calling on angels to rescue him. He says to Peter, you know, if I did that, How could the passages in the Tanakh be fulfilled that say it has to happen this way? So Jesus is following the determined path he is on, knowingly allowing evil to overcome him, in order that the full listing of Old Testament prophets about him are checked off. None can be skipped. I've heard atheists and even some religious Jews argue that because Yeshua admitted he was doing these many things with the intent and purpose to publicly fulfill the writings of the biblical prophets, then this means that he was but a somewhat deranged man contriving his own demise so that many might think He must be the subject of those Old Testament prophecies when, in fact, any other would-be Messiah with sufficient grit and courage could have done the same thing. I would only argue that for many centuries before Yeshua showed up, no one, at least no one I've heard of, attempted to do what He did. See, I think perhaps a better way to think of what Yeshua was doing is that it is much less choreographing his own death than merely allowing redemption history to take its God-ordained course without resisting it. Besides, there is no credible way that anyone, no matter how intelligent or courageous, could have willed all the many elements and people and decisions involved to happen in a perfectly coordinated manner and arrive at the same place at the same moment that we see unfolding here. You know, David Stern did a good job of listing several of the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus was fulfilling, and I'm just going to highlight a few of them. Isaiah 49.7 says, That at first he'll be hated without reasonable cause, yet later the nations will applaud him. Zechariah 11:12 says he'll be betrayed for thirty pieces of silver. Zechariah 13:7 prophesies that when he's been struck down, his sheep, his followers, will abandon him. Isaiah 53, I think this has perhaps the most to say about him. Says he was a plain man. Nothing special with his appearance. People avoided him. Many despised him. Like any other human being, he suffered. He suffered from sorrow. He suffered from pain. He would be crushed and wounded, not for anything that he did, but for all the wrong that we have done. He would be buried in the grave of a rich man. His ordeal would make many men righteous before God. Remember now, this is all still in Isaiah 53. While being condemned as a great sinner, he is actually interceding on the behalf of true sinners, us. There's more. But this alone is sufficiently sobering and amazing as the accuracy of it in hindsight just boggles the mind. Well, after rebuking Peter, Jesus proceeds to rebuke the the Jewish religious authorities who have come after him, and he essentially denies that he's any sort of a rebellion fomenter or leader, but they approach him in the dark of the night with many men equipped with swords and wooden clubs as though he was a dangerous person. That had to be apprehended with the utmost caution. He points out that his actions were but teaching in the temple courts, hardly something a rebel leader would do. So, if his teachings are the problem, why not arrest him there? Of course, that question was already answered a few sentences earlier. The high priest and others feared that publicly arresting this popular Galilean holy man on the occasion of Passover would cause riots for which the high priest would be be held responsible by Rome. He repeats to the cadre of the temple guard the same thing he just told Peter. All this is happening to fulfill the prophets, in other words, he's making all of them participants. He's making them all facilitators of prophecies concerning the Messiah. You know, isn't it odd that no one seems to ask when he says those words, which prophets? What prophecies? Just as what is coming soon at the mock trial of Jesus There's no truth-seeking going on here. This is a political witch hunt perpetrated by the elite of the Jewish religious system of that day, personal ambitions, their fierce guarding of the religious power structure that benefited them so luxuriously, and probably a growing hatred of this man that they may not have been able to explain. This is what's at the core of their determination that Jesus had to go. What God wants and what is right never seems to enter the picture. What we see happening is truly the mystery of how biblical prophecy becomes fulfilled. See these fulfillments are a mixture. Are always a mixture of unexpected circumstances, along with inexplicable levels of human desires or fears, of, fears and hatreds that just seem to erupt out of nowhere. As a prophetic fulfillment unfolds, none of the involved, the wicked or the righteous, have any idea that they are but instruments in the Master's hand. And I promise you that in the 21st century, as we proceed at jet speed towards the end of days, all those yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecies will play out just like that. See, we all think we won't be surprised because we're so ready. And we're so wary of current events but we will be surprised all prophecies have come about in the same pattern we should approach this conundrum not by thinking well then what's the use of knowing the prophecies but rather like we would knowing that hurricane season's coming see we in the south we know sooner or later we're going to get hit We just don't know when and it certainly doesn't happen every year thank the lord we get warning but occasionally it's a surprise as a hurricane blows up suddenly or changes its track if we're knowledgeable if we're prepared surprised or not we're okay if we're not if we're ignorant, if we're not prepared, however it happens, it's going to be potentially very harmful to us. In Matthew's Gospel, we see regular warnings by Yeshua to his followers to be on alert. Be prepared for the day of the Lord. Not so much that so that they can see it coming, because they probably won't. Now, the final words of verse 56 are so very sad, in some ways ought to be a bit terrifying for us. It says that when, after Yeshua had dressed down everyone present, the 11 remaining disciples did what? They deserted him. They deserted him. I mean, I I can't stress enough that what is happening here is not merely some frightened men running off to hide. The entire point is a loss of faith. Back in verses 34 and 35, Yeshua indicated and predicted that all of them would disown Him, not just run away because they got scared. I think the speculation is fair to say that once their master got arrested, they figured the movement was over. They'd been mistaken. they had tied all their hopes and future to the wrong guy. If those 12 disciples would betray or renounce Jesus when things got tough, what might we do when things get tough for us? can we be so naive as to think that their loss of faith wasn't also a loss of salvation? If it's not, then faith as the condition for our salvation has no meaning. Let's read a little bit more of Matthew. Open your Bibles again. We'll Start reading at verse 57 of chapter 26. Start reading at verse 57. Those who had seized Yeshua led him off to Caiaphas, the Kohen HaGadol, the high priest, where the Torah teachers and the elders were assembled. Kepha, Peter, followed him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the Kohen HaGadol. Then he went inside and sat down with the guards to see what the outcome would be. The head priest and the whole Sanhedrin looked for some false evidence against Yeshua so that they might put him to death. They couldn't find any, even though many liars came forward to give testimony. At last, however, two people came forward and said, This man said, I can tear down God's temple and build it again in three days. Now the high priest stood up and said, Have you nothing to say to the accusation these men are making? Yeshua remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I put you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah the Son of God. And Yeshua said to him, The words are your own, but I tell you that one day you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of Hagavurah the power, and coming on the clouds of heaven. At this the high priest tore his robes. Blasphemy, he said. Why do we still need witnesses? You've heard him blaspheme. What's your verdict? Guilty, they answered. He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and pounded him with their fists. And those who were beating him said, Now you Messiah, prophesied it was. Who hit you that time? Kind of nasty, huh? What comes next is sometimes called the trial of Jesus. Yet, similarly, attempting to understand exactly what. The Last Supper was, in Jewish tradition, so it can be as challenging to figure out what was really going on when Yeshua was taken before a group of men at the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, the panel of men gathered at Caiaphas's house was no doubt some or most of the Sanhedrin. The, the high priest was always the, the president of the Sanhedrin. So, some thought and organization had gone into finding Christ, arranging to arrest Him, bringing Him to a predestined place, and then having these men already assembled to quickly pass a verdict on Him without a nosy public being aware. Now, we are meant to notice that expected Jewish justice was not being done here. It was not allowed for the Sanhedrin to meet at night and hold a trial. Instead, what we have is a group of men meeting with the full intent to do wrong, but to do it under the false cover of the authority of the biblically ordained justice system. See, religion of every manner in all stages of history has been misused. To do intentional injustice and harm for a wide array of purposes and wicked intentions. This is because flawed human beings are the leaders and officials of every religion. So, in that sense, nothing unusual or unique is happening here at Caiaphas's home, except that unbeknown to these members of the Sanhedrin, their rotten deed is being used by the God they claim to know and worship to achieve a goal that's different from theirs. Now, we're told that Peter followed the procession of the posse to Caiaphas's house, even into the courtyard. Next, he went and sat down with the guards, almost certainly the same temple guards who had just arrested Jesus, because he was curious to see what would happen next. Now, for whatever reason, these guards didn't associate Peter with Jesus. And they seem fine with him sitting there waiting along with them. Well, Matthew makes the intent of the Sanhedrin as a single minded assembly quite clear. They have no good legal reason to do anything to Jesus, and they know it. So they seek false evidence so that they can contrive a reason to kill him. What is happening is not a trial at all, it's a meeting of conspirators plotting murder. They are searching for something, for anything, to charge Yeshua with to try to make the killing of him seem justified. It must necessarily be something that rises to the level of the death penalty, and there is really only a handful of crimes that could be punished as capital offenses. Now remember, what they had to find was not something criminal in the civil sense of it, but rather the breaking of a Jewish religious law. Criminal offenses were tried under the authority of Rome in Roman courts under Roman law. As verse 60 points out, what must have been a very frustrated court trotted out this string of liars, but the judges still couldn't come up with an offense that even remotely approached the death sentence. Finally, however, two men were brought in who said that Jesus had said that he could tear down the temple and build it again in three days. In Jewish tradition, saying anything against the Temple was considered as bad as saying something against God. Well, as regards the timing of this event, it had to have been on Nisan the 14th, Passover, because Nisan the 15th was the first day of Unleavened Bread, so it was a special festival Sabbath. So, there is no way that Caiaphas would have been able to convene any type of assembly on the Sabbath. Now, as wicked as were these men, Jewish tradition still ruled their thoughts. And they weren't about to do something that, ironically, they thought would get them in trouble with God. Well, Caiaphas latched on to this hope of finally finding a suitable crime and bellowed at Yeshua to respond to the accusation. Yeshua stood silent and refused to answer. Clearly this accusation wasn't going to go anywhere. So Caiaphas tried something else. By refusing to answer. Jesus actually even facilitated Caiaphas moving on to something that not only gave Jesus an opening to announce to the Jewish religious authorities who he really was, but also would be the nail in the coffin, so to speak, that could finally move this process along of getting him to the cross. Caiaphas says that he puts Christ under oath To answer if he is the Messiah, the Son of God. You know, what's really sort of fascinating is that the question Caiaphas put to Jesus, it's the entire point of the gospel. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? He says to Yeshua. Yeshua responds that the words are your own. It's a Jewish expression of affirmation. Caiaphas got it right. But Yeshua didn't stop there. He also makes a prophecy that the Sanhedrin recognized as indicating a divine connection. He says that one day they will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power, and that they will also see Him coming with the clouds of heaven. Now Yeshua has shifted his reference point here from the present to the future to the end times when judgment falls. The court full well understood that the Son of Man reference is found in Daniel and saw it as they saw it as messianic in nature, but they didn't necessarily see it as divine. It was the sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It was that part that enabled Caiaphas to charge Jesus with Blasphemy. Power, or better, the power, was another designation for God. Coming with the clouds of heaven is an interesting statement to deal with. For Caiaphas, this was Jesus associating himself with the divine. But how should we take it? Should we take the clouds as literal or even somewhat figurative? clouds you know those white fluffy kinds that float up in the sky up in the heavens or might the clouds of heaven refer to legions of angels along perhaps myriads of believers that had earlier been resurrected and or raptured to heaven and are now returning to earth from heaven to fight a holy war alongside messiah yeshua while i can't dismiss the latter I do think it's too much part of Daniel's prophecy of the Son of Man coming in the clouds to stretch this to mean clouds of believers and angels coming back with Jesus. For Jews, the Son of Man primarily represented judgment, God's wrath. The thought of clouds as revivified believers, well, that came much later, much, much later in Christian thought. So, at the least, it certainly didn't mean that to the Sanhedrin. Now, there's a couple of other notions included in Christ's claim. The you will see doesn't so much mean the men sitting in that chamber, but rather it's general, it's kind of a panoramic you, probably meaning everyone it conjures up the thought of the general resurrection to come when both the wicked and the righteous shall arise from their graves and so perhaps being witnesses to Christ's return. From now on, those words from now on definitely frames this as a future event, but it could be near or it could be very far away. This is a rather cryptic statement. For the Sanhedrin, it didn't impart a lot of of specific information other than that Yeshua was definitely saying he was indeed Israel's Messiah and he was also Daniel's son of man and that he is in some manner divine. More than enough for for Caiaphas to cry out, blasphemy! I suspect for him, for Caiaphas, that cry more meant victory. Yeshua had just condemned himself, and in Jewish law, a suspect that confesses negates the need for two corroborating witnesses. Blasphemy was the most serious breaking of the Law of Moses, and it was a capital offense that they didn't immediately execute him says they couldn't. They didn't have the authority to do it. They'd have to wait until they could get in touch with Pilate in the morning so they could ask for Yeshua's execution. The members of the Sanhedrin are said to agree that he was guilty and death is the proper sentence. They are now equally and fully liable for sending God's son to the execution stake. We're told that they spit in his face, hit him with their fists, mocked him by saying, "To prophesy which of them hit him." See, spitting spitting was to put shame upon the one who was receiving their spittle. Let's reread the remainder of Matthew chapter 26. Open your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start at verse uh, 69 and and finish it up. Kepha, Peter, was sitting outside in the courtyard when a servant girl came up to him. You too were with Yeshua from from the Galilee, she said. But he denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about. He went out into the porch, and another girl saw him and said to the people there, This man was with Yeshua of Nazareth. Again, he denied it, swearing, I don't know the man. After a little while, the bystanders approached Kepha and said, You must be one of them. Your accent gives you away. This time, he began to invoke a curse on himself as he swore, I don't know the man. And immediately, a rooster crowed. Kepha remembered what Yeshua had said Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside. And he cried bitterly." Well, the focus now returns to Peter, somewhat representative of the entire twelve disciples, and in a deeper sense, I think, representative of all of us. He's still sitting in the courtyard of Caiaphas' house when a house servant says that she recognizes him as having been with Yeshua from Galilee. Now we spent much time emphasizing that when reading the New Testament and especially the Gospel accounts, we need to be able to draw a necessary distinction between the Jews of the Galilee and the Jews of Judea. Each not only had a a number of different traditions concerning the observances of various holidays, but they had a general difference in style of living and in underlying values. Nearly all nations have such divisions. For example, here in the USA, we have recognizable differences in values and styles of living between people of the Northeast versus the South, from the Midwest versus the West Coast. We can recognize different accents. Notice outgoing versus more reserved behavior, different modes of dress sometimes. And there are numerous other indicators that can reveal where someone might be from. And in this modern polarized world, there can be outright dislike and disrespect from people living in one region towards people living in another. This is what life was like in the Holy Land. In the first century, Judeans generally considered themselves more sophisticated and pious than the Galileans, which they looked down upon as inferior. The Galileans looked at the Judeans as snooty and hypocritical, self-righteous people. Well, immediately upon the accusation, Peter denied he even knew what this girl was talking about. He made his denial in front of numerous people meaning his denial of faith was as public as was his initial profession of faith the current profession erasing the first and as he begins to try to slink away from this girl who recognizes him he moves to a further outward area where a girl confronts him because she's not buying it. Despite his denial, she knows it's him. And she announces to no one in particular that Peter was with Yeshua of Nazareth. Peter now resorts to swearing, that is, he makes an oath that necessarily, in the Jewish world, invokes God's name. He says, he doesn't know this man, Yeshua. Some bystanders now approach Peter, probably after overhearing this servant girl, and says that Peter must be one of them because his accent gives him away. Yes, the Galileans had a known accent that was different from the the, uh, Judean accent. Now Peter goes all in. He even invokes a curse on himself. In other words, if he's not telling the truth, and insists he doesn't know Jesus. See, in Jewish thought of that era, just as saying or doing something positive three times denotes sincerity and eagerness to do right, so does saying or doing something negative three times Denotes sincerity and eagerness to do wrong. Peter went to full length to deny any knowledge of, any faith in Jesus Christ. He had three opportunities to recount, recant his renunciation, but he didn't. Peter no longer confessed the Lord. Peter no longer acknowledged even knowing who the man was. Peter had only hours ago boasted he was willing to die with the Lord, if necessary. But when he wasn't even threatened with death, only perhaps being punished in some small way, it was enough for him to lose courage. The cock crowed and served as a reminder that Yeshua had told him This is exactly what was going to happen. Jesus' prophecy is repeated. Before the rooster crows, he will disown me three times. Peter had saved himself from any kind of jeopardy, but it was a soul-destroying decision, and he wept bitterly. Now, I don't want to sound overly dramatic, However, we ought to consider that Peter's sudden loss of salvation happened before Christ's death and resurrection. When Peter made the decision to renounce Christ, the proof of who Yeshua is, which lies mainly in the cross and the empty tomb, had not happened yet perhaps that's why Yeshua was so willing to anticipate that He would meet up with this same group of Reformed deserters back up in the Galilee. But what if everyone since His death and resurrection? What about you and me? We have the knowledge of it, there are many witnesses to it, it's history, it's not prophecy. To my mind, it's an even greater condemnation of one's character at this point in history to deny Him, or maybe worse, to know Him and then walk away from Him. Worse than it was for Peter and the disciples. I think Peter's bitter weeping is that first step towards his repentance. He's failed utterly. He knows it. He now has to face the reality of who He is. And when we approach Christ that way, it is all the more humbling to know that God so loves us that He sent His only Son, an innocent man, to die for us. And that His Son, who could have chosen otherwise, followed through. I've always enjoyed Matthew's Gospel because he tries the least of them all to put a happy face on the character and behavior of the twelve disciples, including Peter. See, we have the opportunity to learn from Peter, and the lesson is that we must take care, we must take precautions at all times, and not think too greatly of ourselves or believe that somehow that new nature that God has given us has wiped away the old that remains dangerously active within us. New Testament authors repeatedly warn us that we are always in danger of falling away from our Savior Jesus, just as did Peter. James gave us the good news of hope that it does not have to be the end of our story. In James five nineteen through 20 My brothers, if one of you wanders away from the truth and someone causes him to return, you should know that whoever turns a sinner from his wandering path will save him from death and will cover many sins. On the other hand, the anonymous writer of the book of Hebrews warns of ominous consequences. Of turning our backs on Christ. In Hebrews 10, verses 26 and 27, for if we deliberately continue to sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only the terrifying prospect of judgment, of raging fire that will consume the enemies. We'll begin chapter 27. In our next lesson.